you know, with the Republican sweep and the fiscal stimulus. And then we came in with a synchronized growth environment and China printed more money and liquidity. I think the liquidity was exactly what we missed, was a huge part of it that completely shift the narrative. And by liquidity, especially coming from places like China, I think it was a big issue in, our, in my outlook, at least in macro-wise. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Otavio Costa. Otavio, or I'm going to call you Tavi. Tavi, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am. Thank right. you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure, seriously. All right, well, Otavia Costa is the portfolio manager at Crestcat Capital and has been with the firm for six years. Tavi built Crestcat's macro model that identifies the current stage of the U.S. economic cycle through a combination of 16 factors. His research has been featured in financial publications such as Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Financial Post, The Globe and Mail, Real Vision, and Reuters. Tavi is a native of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and is fluent in Portuguese, Spanish, and English. Before joining Crescat, he worked with the underwriting of financial products and in international business at Braz Service, a large logistics company in Brazil. Tavi graduated cum laude from Lindenwood University in St. Louis, Missouri, with a BA degree in business administration with an emphasis in finance and a minor in Spanish. Tavi played national collegiate. AA, NCAA, Division I tennis for Liberty University. And he still plays tennis, but just for fun. Tavi, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Absolutely. Yeah, I was born and raised in Brazil. My parents are business owners the entire time uh, <laughs> since I was born. And I was raised in an environment of uh, very similar to where I am today, more related now to financial markets. But I uh, end up falling in love with macro research and portfolio management, and, and here I am. But I moved to the U.S. in uh, about 2009 to play tennis in college back then. It was really what allowed me to, to move to the U.S. as for a foreigner person, especially coming from an emerging market economy, is, is very difficult to move to the U.S. to study and, and also live here. So that was kind of my outlet to really move here and, and start my life and where I am here for about 10 years or so and work for Kraske for about six years and truly enjoy what I do and, and absolutely love understanding and, and evolving my process of as being as an investor as well. I got two questions for you. The first one is, a, is one about the tennis and the, the U.S. How did you find that opportunity? I mean, let's just say that there's someone listening who is a very, very good, you know, sportsman or woman, and they're thinking about going to the U.S. to study their undergrad. How would they go about finding that? I was lucky enough. I had a very good tennis coach who actually played tennis in San Jose University in California. He kind of had a, a few connections in, in schools here. And one day I, I went play a tournament in, in Brazil and there was a few uh, recruiters there. And uh, one of them saw me and, and gave me uh, an offer. And I got other offers as well at the time. And Liberty University was, it still is a, a D1. And I thought was an interesting uh, way to start here in my life in the U.S. And I played there for a bit. And it was great. It was a lot of fun just being in a very competitive environment 
end up moving from to another school just for, I really wanted to study a lot more than play tennis. I, I knew that tennis wasn't going to take me pretty much anywhere. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, really dive into other topics and one of them being finance and end up, I think was a good choice looking back. <laughs> mm. So for the listeners out there, either yourself or your children, maybe the lesson is, you know, when you go out to the competitions and events related to your sport in your home country, talk to people, reach out, ask people, and you may find out that people have relationships and connections and other people, you know, by going out and asking, you never know what you're going to find. That's how I'm going to interpret that. Absolutely. Now, now, my second question is about, can you just give us a rough idea of like, what does it mean, a 16-factor model? And what does it tell you? You know, just a brief background on kind of what that is. Oh, yeah. Actually, fairly simple model. The idea really was very much related to uh, the topic of, of this interview, which was sort of a lesson from a, a mistake from a, a macro outlook that I did in 2016, 2017, uh, by giving a lot of emphasis to a fundamental analysis by looking at how expensive stocks were at the time and not really focusing much on the macro and other parts of investing that are, I think, crucial. And my idea was to, if I could give a score to the business model today, what score would that be to the business cycle? So I, I find I went through a lot of indicators and searched for the ones that are most correlated to the changes in the business cycle. Some of them being unemployment rate, which a lot of people see it as a lagging indicator, but different ways of, of looking how the changes in those indicators actually correlate very much with economic expansions and, and downturns and so forth. So by aggregating all those factors, I was able to give us a final score and really see if there is much juice on the upside or downside of anything that I was looking for and let the data drive my opinions. Mm. And I'm just curious about that because on the one hand, you could say that data is out there and anybody could make that kind of a model. Could it really be valuable? But I know on the other hand, you could also say very few people actually take the time to build a structured way of looking at things. I'm just curious, like, you know, what are your thoughts related to that? I think that's a fair point. And it's why everyone is, I think, is supposed to really overlay your research with a lot of other things. This is just one part of the process really is, yes, it's a major part. It's going to be hard for us, let's say, to be extremely bullish if that score is, is telling us that we're very late in the business cycle. However, there are ways of, you know, being a, a more fundamentally bearish, but still being, you know, a bullish in the short term in a sector or a part of the economy. There's always a, a bull market somewhere. And, and I, I think that aggregating a lot of data, not just looking at one macro model itself is key. And it's something that I've been, I've been doing a lot is, is really looking at aligning a lot of data Either way, if, if it's supporting my thesis or not, and I keep that with myself, I try to really aggregate that data and see if, you know, what exactly is the outlook out there today. Mm, yep. The takeaway from me for this section is, you know, for talking about this is the concept of overlay, you know, no one opinion, no one method can do it all. And sometimes we need to overlay the work, additional work on work we're currently doing or you know, and use different perspectives, let's say. So I think that's a good, good lesson on that for what you're doing. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. 
Yeah, I think, well, it was in 2016, 2017, uh, the extension of the business cycle. And I think it's relevant because a lot of people think that today's macro landscape look very similar, which I disagree. But in 2014, it was about, you know, $80 trillion of, uh, of global GDP at the time. And then we went through it from 2014 to 2015, we had a global GDP decline of 6%, which was, you know, we, we raised close to $5 trillion of gross domestic product. It was very significant at the time. It was just almost as much as the global financial crisis. And there was, there was a lot of reasons for that. Oil prices were collapsing. You had a strong dollar. You had other commodities collapsing. You had China going through a turmoil with Chinese stocks going from a boom to bust in less than a year. And then investors are pulling money out of China. And then you had capital outflows picking up in that place and the Chinese currency, the value. Most of those things were pretty well, I would say, positioned. And we did really well during that time. The real problem was, was after that was not seen when the Fed really paused its rate hike cycle and we had elections that changed it completely you know, with the Republican sweep and the fiscal stimulus. And, and then we came in with a synchronized growth environment and China printed more money and liquidity. I think the liquidity was exactly what we missed, was a huge part of it that completely shifted the narrative. And by liquidity, especially coming from places like China, I think there was a big issue in, our, in my outlook, at least macro-wise, and to our credit, I mean, yeah, we thought China was on the brink of a credit collapse, and we still do, by the way, but we thought it was going to be a lot worse in the short term. Instead, it's been dragging on for a few years, and we've seen some sort of deceleration of growth over the years. But I think one thing that we underestimate quite a lot was that companies and countries, they can continue to lever up as long as cost of capital remains low. And I think that back then, it was huge that with China, China was able to print more money, really lever up and nothing, you know, it was not much of a cost. I mean, yeah, the currency, the value a bit, but it wasn't severe. So today, I think it's a little bit of a different environment because of the pork prices rising, you have inflation starting to pick up in places like China, you have, you know, companies defaulting that causes issues with cost of capital in a little bit of an exhaustion of that accumulation in China that I think it puts them in a different position in terms of monetary stimulus. But I think that that was completely different back in 2016, 2017, and really allowed them to extend the business cycle globally. Mm. Okay. So what happened? Well, after that, well, we were, you know, we were remained pretty bearish, I would say, position in the portfolio that cost us the performance in 2017. But then what we did was, you know, we started to do a lot of research in the macro part and really focus on what are some other indicators that we missed in terms of liquidity and in terms of, of things that drive, you know, that actually have a very strong correlation with the business cycle. And what we found was that, you know, by creating macro models, different macro models, not just the macro model that a lot of people see that I post on social media, but other things that we do internally that started to show us that, you know, yes, liquidity was still growing at that time in 2016, 2017. But what we didn't see 
was that liquidity wasn't growing in 2018. And then we came into 2018 trying to address most of the issues we had early then in 2016, 2017. I think what was key about it was to remain positioned with, even though we end up missing that bullish moment in 2017, was to remain actually bearish in 2018 and end up being one of the best performances in terms of hedge funds in 2018 for Kresge Capital. And I think they're really trying to capitalize from that downturn in the business cycle, which right now we're kind of in a very uh, strange scenario, which kind of for a lot of people looks a lot like the 2016 and 2017 scenario that we had. And I, I would argue strongly that it's very different for a lot of bullet points. But I think a lot of the lessons on that was to really respect the uncertainty that you never know, you know, the probabilities of when a business cycle could, you know, extend for whatever the reason and understand the asset valuation part is a key part of key component of the investment process, but prioritize this major liquidity forces, especially places like China. I think being aware of the shifts in the narrative is very, very important. And the real sentiment among investors, we all look at things like soft surveys, like CEO and CFO surveys. They're key to understand because those, those people really make the key decisions in terms of employment, investments, and so forth. But understanding investors' allocations, a lot of times we see the sentiment being very bearish out there. But guess what? A lot of pension funds and the large investors are actually still you know, mostly bullish in terms of allocations towards risk on assets and so forth. So understanding that you're not supposed to be perhaps a perma bear and there's always a bull market somewhere and being open-minded because I think John Burbank did said something that was very interesting to me and it changed my outlook quite in a lot of ways. And he said that the world will always look vastly different than most expects five years from now. And I think that was a very interesting way to see it and how I try to apply that nowadays, at least in my investment process. And if we go back to the time when it just, everything wasn't working for you guys and for yourself, can you take us back to any moment or can you tell us a little bit about how it feels when you're getting it wrong and you're just not really sure what to do? You know, you could double down on your idea, but your idea is not working or you can change your idea. And, and like, what was the feeling at that time? Yeah, it was not very easy to... Uh, I guess, see a constant, well, what we had was really a prices of oil really bottom in 2016 with, you know, we don't know if for sure, but it seems to be like China was really printing money and, and having a higher effect on commodity prices and causing an impact on those markets. And so I think that missing that part, and especially the, the part of the political change, the political change was huge. I didn't think, well, a lot of people didn't think that a Republican sweep was really going to happen and that we're able to see another, another wave of fiscal stimulus at the time. So in terms of portfolio, yes, you have to, uh, it was a moment in which we had to shrink our positions. And another part of it is that when you short the market and you're wrong, and your position gets bigger. So we had to apply new forms of risk metrics to then really be able to trim those positions and, and be able to stay in the game. And otherwise, you know, those positions grow and your risk grows in the same uh, in tandem. So I think that was a, a very important moment for the firm to really reassess our, our risk 
parameters and, and see how, you know, different ways of, of looking at correlations and, and different ways of looking at positioning the portfolio. I think that looking for smart hedges was something that we've been applying quite a lot today in terms of looking for pair trades. By that, I mean, for instance, trying to simplify your, your idea. So let's say for a very bearish today on equity markets, you know, being bullish gold and precious metals is something that we like because it, I feel like it's very difficult for us to see an organic growth in equity markets here in the U.S., fundamentally speaking and economically speaking, without being driven by central banks and that would probably cause, you know, precious metals to rise. So searching for those sort of smart hedges, I think that was, you know, something we could have done more of that, especially in 2016. We could have written more of the gold and precious metals rise during the first six months of 2016, which we did, but we probably should have done a little bit more of that. So it's definitely not a, an easy uh, environment to be caught up, but I think every investor is part of any investor's career. And I, I take that with a lot of lessons that I learn, and I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot more lessons throughout mm. my, my history of trading and investing. And I think that uh, risk is, is something we all need to respect and uncertainty is something we all need to respect and be able to apply, you know, the changes in probabilities, especially if your narrative, your narrative shifts as you get more news. And mm -hmm. I think that understanding and updating your calculations of how your narrative is likely to occur is key. And I'm, you know, it's something I didn't do much back two, three years ago. And I think that I've been applying that more and more. Got it. Well, if I look at the learnings that you had from this, I mean, there's a lot for our listeners. Respects uncertainty, understand liquidity and the impact that that can have, understand and pay attention to the shift in narrative, which is sometimes hard to do when you're in the middle of it. You also mentioned about surveys for CEOs and CFOs, and that these are the people that ultimately shape the future of allocation of capital. You also mentioned about understanding the way the investors are shifting their allocations. You talked about the power of political change. And, you know, I think that that one is a very, I guess when I, when I look at how I sum up what you've shared with us, a lot of it comes down to, because I, I would highlight the last one, which is the smart hedging. The thing that comes out of it to me is that things can change. You've got to build your framework to be able to deal with that. And so I, I wrote down when I was listening to you speak, I said to myself, always question, always learn. When I say always question, it's not just being curious. It's about questioning your thesis. And that's where I think the smart hedging comes in and the idea of not going all in on any one, you know, one thesis, but being able to kind of position that so that you're, you know, moving into a thesis a little bit more carefully and also making sure that if you're wrong, what part of my portfolio is actually going to rise because I'm not betting at all on that one thesis. Would that summarize what you've said? Is there anything you'd add to that? Yes, absolutely. And I think working in intensely in terms of refreshing your portfolio positions is another thing. I mean, if possible, you want to obviously take a directional position in terms of a trade, but that still allows you to be diversified. And by that, I mean, let's say if you're, you know, you're favorable on, on terms of uh, precious metals prices, you think that that's going to rise. Well, you can, instead of just buying gold, you can, you know, you can select a basket of companies that are in the mining sector. You can find related commodities there. You know, so you're not just taking one concentrated position. And I, 
I feel like that's an important part of it. Another thing that we, you know, that I could add there is is really searching for your highest conviction ideas and try to uh, aggregate them in a way, either is a chart. I really, you know, the way I see things is a little bit different in terms of how I'm always thinking about charts. I create charts all the time because it's one way that I find easier to express my views. So, you know, when I think about our positions in at Crescat, I always try to find a chart that really expresses that so I can really go back and kind of look at, you know, how that, that trade would have worked in different environments. Mm-hmm. Backdating that is a key part of at least my process of seeing if, you know, if, if I really believe that this could be a, a good way of positioning portfolio in general. Mm-hmm. And I think not being I think we all, as investors, try to be contrarian, but not just trying to be contrarian for the sake of being one, but instead, you know, finding enough reasons to take a contrarian view because, because you have those reasons. There are very strong reasons on a very uncrowded view. So I think that that's another part that I think it's key. And, and when you find those, it's really where the opportunity lies ahead. Got it. So now we're going to summarize this into one thing. So I'm going to ask you the question, based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I'd like you to kind of go back to the way it was, what you've learned, but what one thing, you know, that a person that is in your situation should do. Absolutely. I think that one action that I would take as an investor, if I was starting today, would be to do extensive research on liquidity and the historic impacts of that and understand how global macro research, it really becomes a critical part of this process, at least. And some people find that easy by creating models or looking at charts or, or understanding the, the narrative and, and reading the news. But understanding how, you know, how liquidity is, you know, can, is really, I mean, if you have a, a short bias view on the equity markets, I mean, things can still get expensive. Liquidity continues to come in. And understanding when liquidity really shifts, I think that that's the key part of it. So focusing on that is something I would at least recommend to anybody here. That's great, great advice. I like the way you've brought it down to that one thing. And I'm just, as you're talking about that, I was just picturing somebody snorkeling underneath the water or, you know, kind of diving underneath the water at the ocean. And they're looking at all the interesting things that are at the bottom of the ocean or that's swimming around, but they're missing this huge wave that's coming. And the fact is that wave impacts everything. The little rocks on the floor are going to get shifted around. Everything is going to be impacted by that big wave that's coming. And so in a sense, what you're telling the listeners, I think, is that liquidity can override other things that you maybe think are important. The importance of liquidity is quite significant. Would I sum it up? That's right. And understanding a lot of times, understanding liquidity means understanding what's at the center of either the macro imbalances or what's driving credit. A lot of times credit is being driven by, you know, one economy or a group of economies or a industry or a sector. And I think that that's very much linked with asset prices. A lot of times liquidity or high liquidity drives bubbles and things like that, those imbalances and, and making sure you are, you know, it's okay to ride a bubble up as long as you know, you, you know, that can become a bubble. And I think that understanding that part of it, of the aspect is key because otherwise, if you just worry about bubbles and, and all that, you become a perma bear. And that's also not, 
something you want to be in a camp throughout your investment career. <laughs> I think that, you know, and it's all related to liquidity, really. So, I, yeah, that's, that's the way I view it. And I, I do give a lot of emphasis to that on my research today, no doubt. Got it. And, uh, you know, this is being recorded in early November 2019. And I'm just curious, a lot of my listeners also are in Asia and they look at America and they really can't figure out. Sometimes they feel good about America's economy and stock market. Other times they feel, you know, like things are going to crash and it's very hard for someone outside of the U.S. to really get a strong view on that. I'm curious if you could just give us a very simple, simple view of kind of what you see based upon your macro factors and the way you look at things as it relates to the U.S. Because here in Asia, well, the markets are cheap. You know, they've fallen a lot over the last couple of years. So it's really the U.S. that everybody's wondering what's going to happen. I'm just curious if you just give us a couple words on that. Yes, I think the macro landscape in the U.S. is and why it's so different than 2016, 2017 in a lot of ways is, you know, we had, first of all, yield curving versions, for instance, was almost non-existent at the time. And today we had, you know, a few months ago, we just had about 70% of the yield curve got inverted in the U.S. I mean, that's a huge signal on its own. We had consumer confidence, which is, you know, it's one of those indicators of that macro model that has a very high correlation. It's really a contrarian indicator. Consumer confidence tends to be high when you're at the peak of the cycle. The same works for unemployment rate tends to be low when you're, when you're at the peak of the cycle too. And if you look at the ratio of consumer confidence to unemployment rate, it's now retesting the 2000 levels or the tech bubble levels. You have CFO and CEO surveys plunging. And, and as I said, those are professionals that make employment and investment decisions that are key to understand that. And also the buybacks, right? The buybacks are becoming less effective. When you look at buybacks index, or there is an index, S&P 500 buybacks index, which are companies that are purchasing their, the companies are really purchasing their own stock. And what you see there is that year over year change of the indexes was actually negative just a few weeks ago, which I find that interesting because we're still having a significant amount of buybacks here. We have about 19 economies today with 30-year yields below the Fed funds rate. We view this as a global yield curve inversion as it tends to happen, those distortions, right when you're at the peak of a cycle. And I think one of the biggest imbalances we have today is really is, is that inflation is at a decade high. And in so many ways, you can look at either median or core CPI. And at the same time, you have a GDP forecasts and actual GDP decelerating. And also at the same time, you have inflation expectations at a 40-year low. So those are all really interesting parameters. I, I feel very strongly that one, one of the trades that I like a lot that is part of my high conviction trades is, is really being long precious metals and, and short U.S. stocks or the long gold to S&P 500 ratio would be a very, very simple way of looking at that. And you can chart that and you can see how that worked during, you know, even prior to 08 and the housing bubble. And, some, and a lot of times this ratio can go higher, not just because stocks are falling, but a lot of times just because precious metals are rising. So I feel very strongly that throughout history, when you looked at, let's say, yield curving versions, every single time in history, we had yield curving versions reach 70%. We have at least double move of that gold to S&P 500 ratio. So I, I 
do strongly that given this macro landscape, it's very favorable for precious metals and, and not so favorable for risk on assets, meaning I don't think it's time for, for anybody to be taking a lot of risk here in the U.S. Got it. And for the listeners out there, the benefit of listening to this show is we know a lot about making awful mistakes. And one of the biggest things is to not properly size our positions. So if you decide, hey, I want to go long gold and short S&P or anything that you hear from anybody out there, the main thing is to build that position slowly and size it carefully. Don't put all your money in any one position, that's for sure. And I think that's part of what we take away from you know what your story is, is that you've got to look at a lot of different angles. So Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you reviewing that. That helps us a lot. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, professionally, I would say that I truly would like to profit from what I believe it's one of the, the greatest macro setups I've seen in my career and to grow our business here and continue to evolve as an investor. I think those are my professional goals and, and more personal goals, I would say I've been in this thing of running a marathon per year. And another one is to run another marathon, my fifth marathon next year. So that's just a personal goal that I, I truly enjoy going for long runs is a good way to really reassess your views about not just markets, but your life as well. So it's another recommendation. <laughs> in, in fact, it's such a great recommendation or a great thing that to get out and exercise and just to get out is that I like to say, you know, pretty much all of my good ideas came from outside the office. And I have a park nearby here in Bangkok, Thailand. And I try to get there once a day, either early in the morning, sometimes I go at lunch. I don't often go at dinner time or at that time. But the point is, is that, you know, whether I'm listening to a podcast or I'm just thinking, it's amazing how your mind, you know, just jumps from one thing to another and you start to construct you know, some thinking. And in fact, my worst investment ever originated, the first kernel of it originated at that park, walking around, thinking and thinking about it. So I highly recommend it for those listeners that haven't built a habit of some sort of exercise or some side of way of getting away from the office, do it. It adds a lot of value. I couldn't agree more with you. That is a secret that shouldn't be a secret. Everybody should know about it. (laughs) I can't think of so many times I stop in the middle of a run to take notes of an idea that I have and then, and then end up being a great idea later on. And I, I I suggest that (laughs) that's that's been a great thing in my life at least. Absolutely. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Tavi, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, I would say that, you know, I think losing is part of the game, even though, you know, important to... um, hopefully learn as much as you can from other mistakes from other people (laughs) and apply those lessons to your own investment process and knowing that this is sort of an art you know every person will see it in a different way and that's the beauty of investing really in understanding narratives you know every person will see the narrative of what's happening in the world in a different way and doing your own homework i think it's key and having that in mind that risk is something that everyone should take very serious i think that's my last stake. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.